We're coming to a land down under. Oh, I get it. <laughs> Chuck, we're going to Australia. And New Zealand. And New Zealand. That's right. Oh, man. Like, we are really excited. This has been years in the making. Mm-hmm. We're finally pulling the trigger. Mm-hmm. In September, we are doing shows on September 1st at the Astor Theater in Perth. Sunday, September 2nd. Yeah. At ICC in Brisbane. Which, heads up down there to you guys, that's spring for you, not fall. All right, where else? September 3rd, Monday at Goldfields Theater in Melbourne. Sure. We're really getting around. Thursday, the 6th of September at the Enmore Theater in Sydney. Yeah. And then, man, we are going to wrap it up Friday, September 7th at the Bruce Mason Theater in Auckland, New Zealand. I cannot wait for that one. Yep. You can go to SYSKLive.com to get info and to buy tickets, which are on sale April 17th. We will see you in September, Australia and New Zealand. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark with Charles W. Chuck Bryant with Jerry Rowland. Three of us put together, uh, put us in some Ray-Ban aviators, put a gray hoodie sweatshirt on us. You got stuff you should know. <laughs> I know. I like your uh, costume today. I thought I would dress up to really kind of drive home the idea that I have, I know what we're going to be talking about. Yeah, you know what's funny is that today, all of these years later, when you see someone in aviators in a hoodie, with the hood up, mm-hmm. you say, geez, you know, what's up, Unabomber? It's it's part of the social fabric these days. It really is. Like, I, I, I ran across some, some I, I guess, an article from the late 90s or whatever that was talking about that, that famous sketch mm-hmm. and how it made its way onto, like, coffee mugs and keychains and T-shirts and, like, it became, like, a pop culture icon. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it was on uh, some T-shirt design at... Uh, What's that terrible store? Spencer's. Well, no. That one's, Hot Topics. That one's great. <laughs> no, Urban Outfitters. Oh. Uh, wait. So you're a Spencer's fan, huh? Sure. Okay. Spencer's yeah. over Urban Outfitters. I guess that is, that's the great divide, you know? Well, Michigan, Spen- <laughs> Ohio State. Spencer's, Urban Outfitters. Urban Outfitters is just trendy, like, stuff that they think is clever but it's not. Spencer, you could go in and get a poster of a bikini lady on a Ferrari, some incense, and a, and a giant rubber penis. Right. Like, what? that's a great store. I, I, <laughs> I guess it is. You know, everything you need under one roof. I can't remember what I was in there for the other day, but they have, like, the most extensive um, selection of tasteless shot glasses I've ever seen in my life. At Spencer? Yeah. Which it's like, there's people collecting these. You can tell. I want to know who Spencer is. Uh, Spencer doesn't want you to know who he is. Okay. That's why he called his store Spencer. Yeah. <laughs> his real name is Jackson McLean. Oh, wow. Nice work, Jackson. You threw me, you sniffed me off the case. Nice. That was a good save, Chuck. Thanks. Speaking of good saves, I'm going to bail us out of this intro. Let's do it. Take us back, way back to 1979. Um, Eight? I'm a little seven year old, Chuck. Eight. Sorry, Chuck. We're. Going to go back one more year, 1978. Yeah, I was seven. Oh, so you knew I got it wrong. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Well, in 1978, in the Chicagoland area, there's a, a university called Northwestern University. Go Wildcats? Mm, I didn't look this one up. 
I think it is the Wildcats. That's what we're going with. Um, and there was a, a security officer named Terry Maker who opened a suspicious-looking package. That's I couldn't find why Terry Maker opened it, so I should say, everybody, I'm making the assumption here that it was deemed suspicious, and they're like, go get the security guard. But Terry Maker opened this package, and it exploded. Yeah. Uh, he, he got some minor cuts and burns. Uh, I don't see too many people counting him as a, a victim of the Unabomber, although I think Terry Maker would probably take issue with that. Sure. Um, but he was, by all accounts, the first person to come into contact with the Unabomber or one of the Unabomber's bombs. Yeah, he was number one <clears throat> in 1978 that uh, would go on to be 15 more bombs over a 17-year uh, sp- killing spree. Well, in a way, he killed three people in the end. Wounded uh, many more, mm-hmm. uh, and we won't go through all of the targets, but they ranged from American Airlines Flight 444 yeah. to the president of United Airlines, Percy Wood, mm-hmm. to a Vanderbilt University secretary, to a timber industry lobbyist, to an advertising executive. Part of the reason why it was uh, so maddening for so many years was because the there was no rhyme or reason, seemingly, to the victims of the Unabomber's wrath. No. The one thing that they all shared in common, and the Unabomber also um, wrote letters to newspapers during this whole time, um, the, the thing that they had in common was that they had something to do with technology or the advancement of technology um, or the destruction of nature, one of those two. Right. And so these these. People like that was it. That was all you had to be doing to be a, a target of the Unabomber. He was extremely indiscriminate in picking who lived or died by his hand. Uh, and you have to understand all of these bombs, none of these bombs were sent to scare people. Every single one of these bombs, whether they killed somebody or not, were intended to kill somebody. Yeah. Who they killed, the Unabomber didn't much care. And you can tell by the 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 kind of insouciant attitude he had toward who who was targeted. Like, he would get names wrong. Yeah. His last victim, a guy named um, uh, Gilbert Brent Murray, mm-hmm. he, he was a timber industry lobbyist. He opened the package because he was the president of the, the timber industry lobby, uh, w- even though the package was addressed to his predecessor. And the reason it was addressed to his predecessor was because the Unabomber had pick the name out of a directory, and it was an out-of-date directory. So this guy um, died as a result of the bomb, you know? That's a very Unabomber thing to do. It really was. And I think the Unabomber, if you talk to the Unabomber today, which you could, apparently he's very easy to get in touch with and become a pen pal of, um, he would tell you, totally fine. Like, I don't care who died. Like, the head of this timber lobby died. That was ultimately what I was going for. So he was killing people who were associated with an idea a cause, and the cause that he was opposed to was the destruction of nature and the um, the advancement of technology. Right. So we're talking, obviously, about Ted Kaczynski. Uh, it was the man's real name. And early on in 1979, right after these uh, attacks started happening, uh, the Postal Service, the ATF, and the FBI got together, formed a task force, and that's where they came up with the name, uh, Unabom, U-N-A-B-O-M stood for University Airline Bombings because yeah. those were the first bombs that were sent. 
And I guess the, the name of the case was by the FBI, but the name Unabomber was made up by the media covering it, right? Yeah, that's usually the case. Yeah. Uh, in the end, it would become the longest running at the time. I, I don't know if it's been outdone yet, but longest running and most expensive FBI investigation in history. Wow. Uh, eventually had 150 full-time employees on the case, mm-hmm. which is amazing. And he was tough to uh, tough to get. And, you know, he had no forensic evidence uh, left behind. He was very careful. He used bombs that were made out of uh, materials that were easy to find. You couldn't track them. He made all of them by hand, painstakingly? Yeah, made them all by hand. Like we said, the victims were chosen seemingly at random. And had it not been for his manifesto, they may still be on the lookout for this guy. Yeah, and even still, the way that they were able to connect these things was because during this 17-year campaign, he um, would write letters to uh, to the editors of newspapers around the country claiming responsibility for these, these crimes. Um, and then I think half of the bombs had the inscription FC on parts that were recovered. And FC stood for Freedom Club because uh-huh. the, the Unabomber didn't call himself the Unabomber. Again, that was the media. All of these things, uh, including the manifesto, was signed the Freedom Club. A club of one. Right. But he uh, he always wrote about we whenever he was referring to himself. Yes. So the whole thing came to a head uh, in 1996 when Ted Kaczynski was arrested in uh, his cabin in Lincoln, Montana. Uh, he was known to his neighbors as the Hermit on the Hill, and he'd lived there for years and years and years, I think since the early 70s, I believe. Yeah, I mean, it was a little primitive cabin, uh, off-grid. Uh, inside, they found about 40,000 pages worth of journals uh, describing all his crimes. They found bomb parts. Uh, they found a bomb ready to be mailed. And they knew they had their guy, uh, thanks to <laughs> his brother, David, turning him in, essentially, after reading this manifesto. Uh, he was eventually arraigned in Sacramento, which is where the final murder uh, took place. And he was sent to jail, or initially said, no, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, be, uh, I don't want to plead insanity. That's a big, big point. Yeah, because I don't, I don't think he would have admitted something like that. But he tried to kill himself in uh, early 1998 in his jail cell. That triggered a psychiatric evaluation, and he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, which triggered a plea bargain that basically said you can avoid the death penalty now if you take this plea bargain. He did, and in January of 1998, uh, he pleaded guilty, accepted the eight life sentences with no parole, and is now living with quite a few other famous bombers um, at the... Florence, Colorado, Alcatraz of the Rockies, the the ADX there. Right. Which that place in and of itself is crazy. I looked into it. Yeah, I feel like it's come up in plenty of other episodes before because it certainly sounds familiar. Yeah. So I was looking into, um, there's this fascinating article called Harvard and the Making of the Unabomber by a guy named Alston Chase, who I think wrote a book on it. But in this article. Um, it was so good. He, You read it too? Oh, yeah. So he he really kind of lays out a pretty great case based on evidence that he compiled from interviews and things like that, that <clears throat> it's definitely not a slam dunk diagnosis that the Unabomber has schizophrenia. And he also, I don't know if he says it outright, but he at the very least intimates that that it was Ted Kaczynski's brother David 
and his legal team that created the public persona of the Unabomber as a, as a person with schizophrenia yeah. uh, to keep him from getting the death penalty. This is much, much, much to the chagrin of the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, who eventually did cop to this plea bargain because it, it became clear to him that if he went to trial, his defense team was going to put in an insanity defense whether he liked it or not. Yeah. And he was denied the ability to represent himself. So he was presented with a choice. Either go to trial, plead insanity, maybe get a lesser defense. But in the meantime, his manifesto would be painted as the ramblings of a madman because he would be deemed insane or plead guilty and not insane, defend his sanity, and then in his hopes um, also by, by extension defend his manifesto and the ideas in it. Yeah, so he is still in prison in Colorado. Apparently, like you said, he's got a lot of pen pals uh, because he lived in a tiny little primitive cabin for so many years. By all accounts, he has adapted pretty well to prison life. Uh, being in a small room is no big deal to him. Apparently not. And uh, you can actually go to the, and I'm going to totally check this out. I don't know if I can do it on this upcoming tour, but you can go see that original uh, cabin at the museum mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C., and I've looked up pictures, and it's kind of all right there, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, the whole thing is just right there in the museum. Yeah, so he was a brilliant guy. Uh, like you said, he went to Harvard. He was a National Merit finalist. He was a math prodigy, started Harvard at 16, mm-hmm. uh, had an IQ or has an IQ of 167, and uh, was just a is just a brilliant, brilliant guy. And I think we should take a break. <laughs> I'm getting a tingle. And we'll come back and we'll talk. Uh, well, I guess we should talk about the manifesto. Let's. All right. Ready for this. All right, Chuck, and we're back, and we kind of left it off on, uh, well, we promised we're about to talk manifesto. So let's talk manifesto. Yeah, and after reading the Cliff's notes of this thing Mm -hmm. um, in a few different places, one thing is clear is it's not the ramblings of a madman, A. B, he has, and I hate saying this, but he has a lot of very salient points about where society is headed Due to technology. Or or where it was headed back in the 90s, where it fully is now. Yeah, very much uh, ahead of his time thinking-wise. The way he went about correcting this was was not, uh, <laughs> was abhorrent, obviously. Mm-hmm. But uh, when you read parts of this thing, the Industrial Revolution and its consequences, uh, like here, just let me pull this one, for instance. Okay. Um, here's Here's one pull quote. Once a technical innovation has been introduced, people usually become dependent on it so that they can never again do without it unless it is replaced by some still more advanced innovation. Not only do people become dependent as individuals on a new item of technology, but even more, the system as a whole becomes dependent on it. Does that sound like anything that everyone carries in their pocket every day? Exactly. And he also points out that, like, the way way that this happens, this 
this dependence on technology, it comes about because new technologies seem good and helpful and mm -hmm. useful. And then we eventually adapt ourselves to fit them better. We change our behavior. We change the way we see things. We change the way we think and interact with stuff to fit the technology. And his whole idea was that that, that is the, the um, inevitable outcome from the Industrial Revolution, and that ever since the Industrial Revolution, our society has been in a stranglehold at the service of technology and the people who serve technology, and society has been restructured and reshuffled to the detriment of the individual human, to local communities as a whole, and that um, the only way that this is such, a, this is so ingrained now in our world, the only way to stop this is to violently overthrow the current system. And he has a very laissez-faire attitude about what comes after. He said that um, we have no illusions about the feasibility of creating a new ideal form of society. Our goal only is to destroy the existing form of society. And that was it. And that was the whole reason for his campaign was to be the one of the provocateurs of this revolution that upended technological society. Yeah, here's another a summation of another part of the manifesto uh, about the social infrastructure uh, that he says is dedicated to modifying our own behaviors. Uh, this infrastructure includes an array of government agencies with ever-expanding police powers, an out-of-control regulatory system that encourages the limitless multiplication of laws, an education establishment that stresses con uh, conformism, ubiquitous television networks whose fare is essentially an electronic form of Valium, and a medical and psychological establishment that promotes the indiscriminate use of mind-altering drugs. So, again, I don't want this to come across that I, like, look up to this guy in any way. Right. But when you read some of the stuff, you think, man, if this guy had only reined it in, he could have done good. Yeah, I can't remember what, what the turning point was, but there was some there was some potential path that he was on where he could have done this peacefully, and he—, he pulled back and went, went a violent way. And I think I, I think quite rightly that if he were not locked up for the rest of his life, he would he would keep sending bombs out. He would not stop. No. Because he's he doesn't he's not a a moral agent. He is a rational agent and he sees this as a rational end to the means, to his means, which is taking out people who may or may not be in a position to advance technological society. Well, yeah, and that's what was – that's where the line, the delineation occurs where he was su – he's such a smart person, but that's such a dumb – like there's – blowing someone up is going to – is not going to halt any no. innovations or change the course of where we're headed as a society. Right. It was just uh, – I mean, to call it misguided is the understatement of the year. So, and forgive me for armchair psychologizing here, <laughs> but now you start to get into the idea of whether or not he was fulfilling or indulging his own desire to kill. Wait, well, you never know. Because if he is thinking about things like this, and he is such a rational person, surely there would have been other ways to, to do this that were either more productive or, on the other hand, more destructive, yeah. right? Like sending a bomb that might take out one or two or three people is is not it's and and by making these bombs painstakingly by hand over the course of months and probably years sometimes 
that's not a very a productive way of achieving this goal. So it makes you wonder, did this guy just want to kill people? And and that that coupled with this this view of technological society to form what we know as the Unabomber. Well, I think that was probably the case is he was angry at where things were headed and he wanted to take it out on somebody. Yeah. But again, I want to go back to this idea that he is schizophrenic. Um, right. There is a uh, th- that is not necessarily the case. He was given a uh, temporary or provisional or conditional schizophrenic or diagnosis of schizophrenia by a court-ordered psychiatrist, forensic psychiatrist. And that was it. I don't believe she ever went back and made an official diagnosis. Other people in the media, other psychiatrists, were basically diagnosing him from afar. Some some psychiatrists met with him, uh, but they didn't officially um, examine him. So basically, just based on his actions and his manifesto and what was contained within, he was largely given this diagnosis of, of schizophrenia. And I couldn't find anything that said that he's being treated for schizophrenia now. Yeah. Which is kind of a big deal because it, it's a two, twofold big deal. One, it, it, it says it dismisses him as just a complete madman who is delusional. Uh, but it also does a tremendous disservice to people with schizophrenia because it says this is what people with schizophrenia do. Yeah. They send bombs to people. They go and live in, like, uh, Montana for alone for 30 years and send bombs to people the whole time. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's d- doing that same armchair psychologizing that I was doing. is <laughs> it's, it's, it's worse if you're an actual psychiatrist, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, I think we should talk a little bit about how this this manifesto came to be in public view because mm-hmm. it's a super interesting uh, sub-story in itself. Um, the great, great article from the Washington Post where I got most of this part, but uh, it, they make the point in this article, super interesting to me, that um, the time that this happened in the mid to late 90s, it was a transitionary time in technology in and of itself and that the Internet was around but it wasn't uh, ubiquitous, and it's not where everyone went for everything, including news. So the fact that this publishing of the manifesto in the Washington Post, which we'll talk about in a second, uh, it says here it was perhaps the last one, uh, the last newsworthy document to appear only in print. Right. And it's very ironic considering what he was railing against was that um, it was before everyone was getting their news from the Internet. So the fact that they actually, it was it was an era that was, it was being forgotten, the, the, the newspaper print uh, in print, and that's how he got his message out uh, finally by sending packages containing this manifesto mm-hmm. to the New York Times and the Washington Post in June of 1995. Yeah, so they, they each one got a package uh, one day after the other, and the one to the Post had a return name and address, Boon Long Ho, 3609 Renoso Court, San Jose, California, 95136. And it turns out that that address and that person, uh, it was a, he, he was a CFO of a Thai circuit board maker whose headquarters were in San Jose. Yeah. That was the address for that. So they, um, you can imagine that uh, Boon Long Ho was pretty nervous. Uh, yeah. Because rather than being like the recipient of a bomb, he was supposedly the sender of these, this manifesto to the Washington Post, but the FBI investigated it and quickly cleared Boone Long Ho. Um, and the the Post and the Times suddenly had a decision to make. 
Because in this in this package with this manifesto was a letter that said, if you publish this, I will stop killing people. If you don't, I'm going to start or we will start making our next bomb. Yeah. So they uh, obviously got in touch with the FBI. Uh, the FBI took one look at the letter and said, I think this is from the Unabomber. They went, duh. Uh, <laughs> of course it is. There is no – well, they, actually, they didn't know at the time how many people uh, were sending these bombs. Mm-hmm. Um, but they met with uh, – they had three meetings, I think, with the FBI's director at the time, Louis Free, and uh, the task force. And then two out of those three meetings, Attorney General Janet Reno came. That is like such a 90s meeting. Oh, so 90s. Louis Free and Janet Reno? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so they said, listen, we're not in the safety business. We're not experts on this. You tell us what you think we should do, and then we'll make our mind up what we should do. Basically, everyone said, you should probably publish this um, because, A, we can maybe uh, tag and track newspapers in Northern California where we think he might be. Mm -hmm. Uh, B, maybe someone will recognize this guy and come forward. Uh, Was there a C? No, it was just A and B. Okay. (laughs) And so this is a note to all potential – manifesto writers. Yeah. If you are trying to keep your identity a secret, probably refrain from publishing your 35,000-word manifesto. Yeah. Because you're going to out yourself. And For that's sure. exactly what happened with Ted Kaczynski. Um, the Washington Post and the New York Times agreed to do this. Actually, the, the New York Times is like, why don't you do it? And we'll just half the cost of printing and distribution. Yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. I'm surprised they didn't both want to. Yeah. But the Post said, we'll do it if you go halvesies, which is adorable. <laughs> yeah. And they did. Uh, and then they said, here's what we'll do, though. We're not going to just put it in the newspaper. We're going to print it in a special section with its own typeface. Uh, and it became a sensation. Like, people wanted copies of this thing, mm-hmm. like extra copies for themselves, wrote the newspaper, and they're like, we don't have any other copies. Um, and like we said, this was the last time that this was sort of a viable like now, anyone can throw anything on the internet. Right. So it was a really interesting time in the uh, the course of humanity that this thing came out. As far as like mad bombers go, having the Washington Post print your thirty five thousand word manifesto is pretty prestigious. Oh yeah. Especially at that time, I can't decide whether it'd be more prestigious today because anybody can just put it out on the internet. Probably so. But yeah, but I think at the time, I mean, like newspapers were at still at the height of their influence, you know? Yeah. Who knows? But at the very, at, at, you can imagine Ted Kaczynski's surprise and delight when the Times published this thing. And like you said, it was a, a sensation, but it made its way into the hands of Linda Patrick, who was actually a childhood friend of David Kaczynski and um, now his wife. And she noticed this, um, or she read this manifesto and said, this sounds an awful lot like your brother Teddy to David. And he read it and he said, oh, no. Should we take a break? Yeah. All right. That's a man. What a cliffhanger. Nice work. I know. Thanks. All right, good cliffhanger. Thank you. 
I feel like we're dangling by our fingernails. <laughs> so where we left off was Linda Patrick, uh, wife of, uh, well, sister-in-law of the Unabomber, mm-hmm. wife of David, mm-hmm. who was the younger brother, said, take a look at this. Mm-mm. David read it and said, this sounds very much like my brother. In fact, uh, there was a term. What was the term that he used that was sort of a dead giveaway? Cool-headed logicians. Yeah, that's a that's not something you hear every day. I don't use that very frequently. Yeah, so he saw that, and I think I, I can't imagine just the stomach churning, sinking feeling that he got right when he saw those three words, especially. Yeah, uh, I, 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 like you said, that was the dead giveaway. I think if you put the whole thing together, though, um, he had been he and his family had been receiving. Actually, he hadn't. Leading up to, I think, 1989, he had been receiving letters from his brother about the same stuff. So I think even without the, that term, he probably would have been pretty convinced. But he was, he was convinced enough to go. Um, his wife, Linda, contacted a, fam- a friend who was an investigator for a lawyer. And uh, this woman kind of took charge of this and, and hired like a, a criminal profiler who looked at the letters from Ted and then the Unabomber manifesto and said, I'm pretty sure this is the same guy. They hired another lawyer who represented the family and they went to the FBI and said, we think we know who the Unabomber is. Yeah, I thought that was interesting in that he didn't go right to the FBI. Mm-hmm. Like he took, it seems like, I don't know how much time, but. It said weeks. Yeah, went through a lot of effort privately to to suss out whether or not they thought it was legit. I mean, I think he didn't, I mean, by all accounts, he didn't want to do this. And he was even worried what his mother would think. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, the mother did say, you know, she she took his head in her hands and kissed him and basically was like, I know you love Ted and you had to do this, basically. She said, I knew it was you, Fredo. <laughs> so... Now we should jump back in time and sort of explain the relationship with David and Ted yeah. and how they got here because they were estranged for 20 years before this. Um, interestingly, you know, we talked about had he not decided to start sending bombs, he could have led a more productive life. Oh, easily. Uh, but David was sort of cut from the same cloth. Like they bought this land together in Montana. Well- Hold on, I want to say something here, Chuck. You just said that he could have led a more productive life. I said that he could have been more productive earlier, too. Do you realize what we're talking about? Is we're saying that he could have better fit into the technological system that he was railing against. Well, <laughs> or, or not, or maybe been an outspoken advocate in a productive way yeah. on Facebook. <laughs> Shit, there you go. Sorry for interrupting. I just had to point that no, out. No, that's all right. Uh, so they had originally had bought this land in Montana together. Uh, they both had these sort of similar ideals about mm-hmm. removing themselves from society. Uh, for David, though, it was like back to nature, getting out of the riff, the the hustle and bustle of the world. To find himself. To find himself, like a spiritual journey. For Ted, it seems very much uh, like I don't like people. Yeah. Um, he was a bit of a misanthrope, and they even have stories dating back to when he was like seven years old when David asked mom, like, what's wrong with Teddy? Like when people come over to visit, he runs to the attic and hides. Something's wrong. And his mom said, you know what? When he was a baby, he was hospitalized for a few days with a rash. And being separated from us for those few days is what is caused this. So, and then she says, so don't ever abandon Teddy. Yeah. That's what he fears the most, right? Yeah, not quite true, actually. So she lays that on on this 
kid, and this is like her, his older brother that she's talking to him about, you yeah. know? Um, but he said that as they grew up, he was kind of like um, Ted's entree into socialization. Like, yeah. David would go to parties, and I get the impression that Ted would kind of tag along, even though he was the older brother. But um, that's not to say that, that David didn't, he says that he looked up to Ted. Um, and Ted was just this whiz kid wonder boy genius when it came to math. Yeah. You, you said he went to Harvard at 16. Like, say that again, man. He went to Harvard at age 16. Yeah, I think he got, like, a, a master's and his Ph.D. in math by the time he was, like, 20 or 21 or something. Okay, yeah. So this guy was a mathematical genius who, uh, from what the um, the Atlantic article by Alston Chase says— kind of lays a lot of um a lot of this at his dad's feet for pushing him yeah at a very early age to to become like to go to Harvard to jump a couple grades in school that kind of stuff um so he was already you could say misanthropic potentially socially maladjusted who knows he he wasn't like a the most easygoing kid on the block. No. But supposedly, once you got to know him, especially if you were a grown-up and not one of his peers, he was very easy to be around, actually. Yeah, so little brother David, he looks up to Ted. He tries to go to Harvard, uh, is rejected. And then, like I said, they bought this land together. Ted builds this cabin. David later on says, well, I, I, can I build a cabin? You know, I want to build a cabin on this land, too. Ted was like, <laughs> no way, dude. This is my cabin and my land. So David, I'm sure, was, you know, very disappointed. He goes, finds his own land in West Texas, builds his cabin, mm -hmm. and they corresponded for many years, a thousand miles apart, about their journeys toward living off grid and getting back to nature. Yeah. I think he lived in, just like um, Ted did for at least eight years, I believe. And then he said his brother disowned him when he sent a letter saying that he was moving out of the 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 forbidden zone into upstate New York to go marry um, Linda Patrick, right? Yeah, I think he th thought he was a sellout, basically. Yeah, that's that's what I get, too. He sent him, like, a, a I think a blistering 20-page letter saying, I'm done with you, we're done. Um, and that was it. That was the last contact that he had had, aside from one letter— after their dad was diagnosed with lung cancer, um, that was the only contact he'd had. So he he hasn't spoken to his brother, corresponded really with his brother since 1989. Yeah, they had this system worked out where uh, if there was a, a family emergency, then David was to put a, a line, draw a line under the stamp of the letter. And that's the only thing that he would open. If you send me any other letters, I'll burn them. Mm -hmm. And if you take advantage of this system and and fool me, by putting a line under it and it's not an emergency, then I'm never going to open a letter again. So he did send that one letter with a line under the stamp about his father. Ted didn't even reply uh, except to say thank you for, for sticking to our system. And he didn't even <laughs> mention the fact that their father was dying. Right. So that was that was the last time they corresponded. Yeah. That was in 1994. But that was it for the correspondence. From Basically from 89 onward, David and Ted were estranged. And so come 1995, David's already not spoken with his brother for six years, and now he suddenly is faced with this idea of turning his brother in, yeah, knowing that he's probably going to get the death penalty. So mm -hmm. when they finally did go to the FBI, and the FBI had their own um, linguistic analysis done on these letters, 
And they said, yeah, this is the guy. Um, David started this campaign to paint his brother as mentally ill yeah. in order to thwart the federal prosecutors from seeking the death penalty. Because apparently they told him that they wouldn't, and then they reneged on that. Um, and he felt extremely betrayed, so much so that he's apparently a crusader for um, an anti-death penalty activist now based on that that betrayal from the federal prosecutors. Yeah, this is amazing. He works, he's the head of the New Yorkers against the death penalty group. And get this, I know you know this, talking to everyone else. Oh, okay. His closest friend, his bestie, is Gary Wright, who is one of the computer store owners in Utah, who was a victim of Ted. Yeah. They became good friends. Yeah, best he had friends. 200 pieces of shrapnel lodged in his body from one of Ted's bombs, and now he and David... Kaczynski are best buds. And one of, so also from that same bomb, that was 1987, one of, uh, is it Gary Wright? Gary U.S. Bonds? No, Gary Wright? Yeah, I think okay, so. Okay, Gary Wright's employee um, is the woman who saw the Unabomber and gave that description to the sketch artist. Wow. I know, that was a turning point in a bunch of people's lives right there. Yeah, that sketch didn't even look like him really, though. I've seen people be like, gosh, it's the spitting image of him. It's like, no, once you have oversized aviators on, it doesn't it look like anybody. anybody. Yeah. yeah. So um, David turns in his brother. Ted Kaczynski's arrested in on April 3rd, 1996. He pleads guilty in um, 1998, and he's been serving uh, his eight consecutive life sentences ever since. And recently there was a big furor, I think in 2012 or 13. When the uh, 2012, I guess, because it would have been his 50th class reunion. Yeah. Harvard, the people running his class in, in publishing the class directory, reached out to him like they did everybody else in the class. That's crazy. And sent him a form to fill out. And he filled it out and sent it back in and they published it. Yeah. He said his job was prisoner mm -hmm. and that he, uh, he listed his, was it eight life sentences as awards? Yeah, and um, gave his address at the Florence, Colorado Supermax facility. And it was a huge, obviously, it was a, uh, a huge embarrassment for Harvard because they were not paying attention and um, a bit of a scandal, too. I, I think Ted Kaczynski probably thought it was hilarious. Yeah, should we, should we finish with a little denouement about this weird Harvard experiment? Only if you say denouement again. <laughs> All right, so going back in time once again to uh, fall of 59 through spring of 1962, there was an experiment at Harvard University led by psychologist Henry Murray. And uh, how they describe it here in this article is a disturbing and what would now be seen as ethically indefensible experiment mm -hmm. on 22 undergrads. Uh, they, each undergrad that took part, Ted Kaczynski was one of them, had a, uh, had a code name. Uh, for the purposes of anonymity, and uh, ironically, Ted uh, Kaczynski's was Lawful, mm -hmm. was his code name. So basically what would happen is, is they would get, it was it was interrogation uh, is what they would go through. So they would go into a room, uh, they would go downstairs to this basement room, and then a voice uh, would say, you know, enter the room, they would enter the room, they would sit down and be faced with a spotlight that would blind them in an otherwise dark room, mm -hmm. and then they would sit uh, in front of a board of inquisitors 
that would order them to do things, kind of start slow, and then eventually um, build up to where they're screaming and yelling at these kids, these, in, in Ted's case, I guess like 16, 17 years old, and uh, berating them, basically. And this was this was not just like you you dressed like a slob or um, you know your mother's meatloaf is terrible. Like part step one of all <laughs> this was that you're you were supposed to talk about some of your most deeply held beliefs, yeah. your most treasured beliefs and in, in values and views on things. And then these these inquisitors who were actually like like um, law student graduate students would would harangue you over your beliefs and, and and explain to you why they were so stupid and, and why you were such a useless human being for holding these beliefs. And the whole point of this, the entire point, was to find out the psychological limits for humiliation yeah. and stress brought on by humiliation and when people would crack. And this is not a one-time thing that he went and did for extra credit. This was carried out over three years. Yeah. Again, the kid's 16 at the time. He's already socially awkward. Um, he's already isolated from, from his peers just by, by um, the virtue of his intelligence, let alone his personal choices at being isolated from everybody. And he's being harangued by like these people about his most deeply held beliefs. And as Brother David said in another article, he doesn't believe that that had anything to do with creating the Unabomber. Plenty of other people are like, no, I'm not so sure about that. Well— Here's what I think. And what was the name of the article from The Atlantic? Um, did Harvard create the Unabomber? Uh, Harvard in the making of the Unabomber. Yeah, it, it's, it certainly didn't help, um, especially when he had this core belief system that was so firmly entrenched for to sit in a room for three years off and on and be criticized and screamed at and called a liar uh, and denigrated like that. I'm sure it did not help. Yeah, supposedly he wasn't a very relativistic person. It was things were black and white. And if you believe something was right, it was right. So to, to have it assailed like that, it, yeah, I, surely it had some effect somewhere. It just couldn't. Well, I mean, Kaczynski or Ted Kaczynski later said that Harvard were the worst years of his life. Yeah. So in some small way, I guess he got them back by getting that published in the directory and embarrassing the, the class. Yeah. Yeah. Revenge is a meal best served cold through a tiny slot in a metal door. Doing eight life sentences. Yeah. Uh, if you got anything else? I got nothing else, man. That was a good one. It really was. Uh, and again, I think it bears repeating nothing about what we've said that agreed with the Unabomber and his theories has anything to do with agreeing with violence of any kind, especially indiscriminate random killing of people with bombs through the mail. It's probably the most cowardly way you could injure or hurt anybody. So we don't agree with that at all. I just wanted to say it one more time. Yeah, for sure. If you want to know more about um, the Unabomber, it's all over the place. You can go type that word, U-N-A-B-O-M-B-E-R, in your favorite search bar, and uh, it will bring up lots of stuff. And in the meantime, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this uh, Subway episode. Remember, we, we release our selects on Saturdays, mm-hmm. and I believe this... I don't know if was this one of your picks. No, I guess it was mine then. Yeah, on uh, subways. So the, it's an old episode, but a recent re-release. Uh, hola, Josh and Chuck. I'm in Andrea from Mexico. I've been listening to your podcast for a bit over a year now, but it's the first time I'm writing in. I listen to subways, and even though it's a rerun, I really wanted to comment because I have some fun facts. 
As you mentioned in the episode, sometimes digging for subways has led to curious discoveries. In the case of Mexico City, the digging of the metro led to the discovery of a lot of the remains of the Aztec City. Uh, even though it was common knowledge that the Spanish city had been built over the ruins uh, of, ooh, here we go, uh, Tenochtitlan. That was pretty much it. Close. Uh, it was only when excavation started in the 60s that they could uncover a whole underground world. Since then, they have uncovered more than 20,000 archaeological objects and continue to find new things to this day. If you have a chance to walk around the city center, you may find the Templo Mayor right beside the Spanish cathedral. Who else can say their everyday commute includes walking by the altar of Ejecatal? Nice. God of wind. Uh, anyway, I think these are very interesting, fun facts that I wanted to share with you and the fellow listeners. Maybe one day you can do a How Mexico City Works episode. Uh, the history of the city is super interesting. I think it's amazing. You can literally see the layers of time in the city today. Uh, and she attaches some pictures. And this is Andrea Gonzalez. And... Man, we should do a show in Mexico City. Sure, man. I bet you we could get a thousand people. Uh, we could. We'll find out. Into a room. I know we haven't delved outside of uh, English-speaking countries before, but I bet you of all the cities, we could probably do so in Mexico City. Yeah, if Morrissey does good in Mexico City, I'm sure we could too. That's kind of we try and model our career after Maz. Um, did you see that picture she sent? Yeah. Of the the altar of the wind god. I'm like. Humans were sacrificed on that. Yeah. <laughs> That's insane that you just walk past that on your way to the subway every day. I know. It's pretty interesting. Uh, well, if you want to tell us about your interesting commute, we always want to hear stuff like that. You can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast or at Josh Um Clark. You can hang out with uh, Chuck on Facebook at Charles W. Chuck Bryant or at Stuff You Should Know, the Facebook page. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. <laughs>